Can you hear me? Yes. Rock and roll. Man, what a beautiful story. It has been so cool over this last month just to hear from people, hear from brothers and sisters, and hear how, how God moves, how He changes lives, how the gospel impacts people. What a blessing. What a joy to be together, church. I'm glad you guys are here. Hello, online world. Welcome from the real world, I guess. Um, we're, we're finishing out our series tonight called One Another. We've spent this whole month talking about uh, what it means or, or kind of the, the, the call or the command upon the church to love and minister to one another. And then next week we're going to jump back into Acts. It's going to be awesome. But, but tonight we're, we're really going to lean into this idea of our, our life together as the church. So the, the weight that kind of sits on us that, 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 that the church bears in our ministry of care. Now, up to this point, so far, we've, we've talked about the reality that ministry, and I'm using that word to mean, to, to kind of in this biblical way, to mean honoring God by serving people in their needs, right? And ministry is the task of the whole church. You know, we, we, we looked at Ephesians and this idea that, that, that all of us are, are who are in Christ, who are part of the church, we are commanded to minister to one another. We spent a week talking about the simplest biblical method for this kind of service, this kind of ministry that we, we minister to one another when we disciple one another. We talked about the differences between disciple making and discipleship and how we invite people into the family, we invite people into the life of the kingdom, but we also, we, we, we draw our lives together and sharpen one another and call each other to growing intimacy with Christ and growing maturity and growing holiness. We talked about the fact that if you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are commanded and equipped to give and receive discipleship. And I hope you guys have heard this in the stories that have been shared. That that's, like, that's not as intimidating of a thing as it sounds. That God, God works through the church. He works through brothers and sisters. He works through relationships and friendships to draw us into deeper holiness, greater dependence upon him, greater belief in the gospel, deeper repentance. We talked about a second way to engage this biblical ministry last week. We talked about how we, we, we minister to one another, we serve one another by meeting needs because of the reality of the curse. People's, people's lives are full of, full of hurt and full of need. And we are ministering like Jesus when we give of ourselves to serve others by helping them, meeting the needs that the curse has created within their lives, that, that as followers of Christ, we, we combat the effects of the curse, whether these are physical needs or emotional needs or spiritual needs or even at times felt needs. This life of self-sacrificial service gives teeth to the faith in Jesus that we proclaim with our lives. So today, as I said, we're ending this discussion by, by wrapping both of these aspects of ministry, right? Discipleship and meeting needs, wrapping them together into the biblical idea of community. And Jesus has called unto himself a family. And we, as his family, are to love one another as he has loved us. And I want you to hear that. He's, he's called unto himself a family. That's, that's, a, that's a weighty 
Like that's, that's a big thing. And we are, we are able, we are commanded to love one another as he has loved us. This is a, this is a heavy call, right? Like don't, don't, don't mishear me on this. This is a big thing. What have I done? There we, is it in there? There we go. This is a heavy call, but it is a glorious one. So turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read one of my personal favorite passages in Scripture. I know you're not supposed to have favorite passages of Scripture, but I do. So, sorry. Philippians chapter 2. This is one of the little bitty Ian's books near the end. I'm going to start us reading in the first verse, the second chapter of the letter to the Philippians, where it says this. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this, beloved of Jesus, is the word of the Lord for us today. Pray with me. Father, As we take a few moments to engage your word, we ask humbly that you would be our discipler, that you would illuminate the text, that you would speak to our hearts what we need to hear. Spirit, I ask that we would have soft and humble hearts, open eyes and open ears to hear what you would say to us today, to meet with you, to be convicted by you, to be encouraged by you, reminded by you, taught by you, and that ultimately we would leave this space today having heard from you, Jesus. We need you. So we pray these things joyfully and expectantly in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, What is the plan today? We're going to look back at this amazing passage in its kind of larger context within Philippians. I think this is going to just kind of, as we kind of go through this systematically, it's going to connect us pretty naturally to some of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of John. And ultimately, I believe, I just believe God's message for us today is going to be simple and and beautiful. And we're going to get there, and then we're just going to end our time with some of Paul's teaching to the Corinthians, and then a time for reflection and worship and celebration and communion. Sound good? Rock and roll. So, what is our text? 
We're in the letter to uh, the Philippians, which if you've never studied this, these, these kind of chunks of the, the books near the end that are really tiny, the end in Ian's, uh, the, these, these are called the epistles. These books are literally letters written by church leaders to different individuals, groups, or churches. Most of them were written by the Apostle Paul. You read about Paul in Acts, we'll get to him pretty soon. He's got a wild story. He was one of the first uh, well-established international missionaries um, in uh, the Christian movement. And he wrote these letters to these churches he planted all around the world. Now, if you go and read Acts 16, which you should, you'll learn about this church in a city called Philippi. This was a unique setting, a unique church. Uh, which, which is why we have such a unique letter here. So this is a church that Paul planted on his second missionary journey. It's the first church ever recorded to be planted in Europe, uh, which I'll let us European-descended folks sit on for a minute and just thank God for his sovereignty. Uh, but but you, again, you can read about this in Acts 16. This is what church planters would call hard soil. Philippi was a rough place to preach the gospel and plant a church. Philippi was a Roman colony set up essentially, it's a little more complex than this, but essentially as a retirement community for career Roman military folk. Folk who went full career and made big ranks or made honors and made lots of money would retire and land in Philippi. The result is that this city was just incredibly patriotic. Where we're talking about a people who loved Rome. They loved Caesar. They believed wholeheartedly that the Roman Empire was the best nation ever founded. God was on the side of Rome, and the good of Rome and the good of Caesar was the highest good, period. Now, really quick, I know that the, the, the sheer idea that patriotism could become a heart idol is just totally foreign to you guys. So you're just going to have to go with me and just kind of imagine a world where people might worship their country and their political leaders in some way that, that makes it difficult for them to grasp the gospel. But, but this is what was going on in Philippi. That was sarcasm, by the way. But this is what was going on in Philippi. So when a man shows up saying that instead of Caesar, rather it is Jesus who is Lord and Savior, the people were less than enthused. And, and Paul meets with almost immediate persecution. It's, there is tons of just pressure for the gospel to not take root in Philippi. But praise be to God that our God is mightier than the nations. And he is mightier than the idols. And the gospel did, in fact, take root. And a church sprouted up in the city of Philippi, and it grew and was healthy and lived for many generations and raised up many disciples. It actually lasted until basically the city ceased to exist. But the radical message of Jesus continued to step on the toes of the idolatry of Philippi. And as a result, this church faced a lot of persecution. Even as it grew healthy and strong, and even as the gospel advanced. So fast forward in Paul's ministry, he's in prison. Now, if you don't know this about the, the Roman prison system, there was literally zero state provided care for prisoners. Prisoners were totally dependent upon family or friends to provide for their lives. Things like food and clothing, I mean, and literally everything 
you, you didn't have just like, you know, prison provided meals or things like that. You were dependent, just locked up on people to bring you things from the outside. So Paul is locked up in a Roman prison. And when the church at Philippi hears that Paul is in prison, they send one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, with a love offering from the church to support Paul in the midst of his imprisonment. The book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians, is Paul's response to this financial gift. He pens it and he sends it back with Epaphroditus. Not content with a simple Hey, thanks for the gift. That was really kind. Uh, Paul pens one of the most rich theological writings on the person of Christ, the, the joy of faith and the life of the church ever written. Like he, he, he writes what becomes like sacred canonical scripture, right? As his thank you note uh, for a financial gift. Our text today is a passage called the Christ hymn. And this sits right kind of, kind of near the middle of Philippians, and, and it creates this really important kind of transition. This is one of the most famous Christologies in the whole of Christian teaching. It's up there with Colossians chapter 1 in terms of just really concisely giving us a beautiful and functioning theology of the person and work of Jesus for our purposes today, we need to understand that this passage is the main theological point of the whole book of Philippians. You see, Paul's explanation of the person and work of Jesus and the implications of the person and work of Jesus upon the believer are then kind of studied out in the stories of individual people, in the suffering of the Philippian church, and ultimately on the call of all believers to, to live and pursue Christ. That, that's kind of the progression of the book. It's the opening, hey, thanks for the money, boom, Jesus is awesome, and the rest of the book is just talking about this passage and who Jesus is and what that means for the way we live our lives. So let's look at what Paul actually says in our text. He starts with this series of questions. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, he's basically asking, rhetorically, mind you, if following Jesus has been worth it for this church. He knows they are suffering for their faith. He's actually just talked about it. They are actively being persecuted, just like he is. So he asks, has Christ given them encouragement? Has the love of God been a comfort? Have they been able to participate in the, the present life of the Spirit of God? Are they growing in affection? Are they growing in sympathy? I mean, what an amazing set of words to describe the Christian life in the midst of suffering, right? Encouragement, comfort, participation with the Spirit, affection, sympathy. Beloved of Jesus, has, has life in Christ created these things in you? What an awesome reflection that is worth our time. But I love this. Paul asks this rhetorically. I sit here and go, man, I could meditate on that all day. Paul says, no, the answer is implied. Of course Jesus has done all of these things. Of course he has. That's the assumption. 
So Paul says, since Jesus has obviously done all these things, he asks this church that he loves, he says, complete my joy. Essentially saying, church, Jesus has been so good to you. I didn't lie to you about this gospel. He is really as good as I told you he was. So do me this one honor, this this one favor. And look what the text says. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He, He says, Jesus has been so good to you, Philippian church, so be unified. Be one. And look how he continues. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul is describing what he means by unity. You you could say this is the biblical definition of the unity of the church. We could could point out kind of three big headlines for, for Paul's definition of unity here. One, kill selfish ambition and conceit. My goodness, <laughs> that could be a sermon series in and of itself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. That is, seeking your own gain and advancement above others. Do nothing out of conceit. Conceit is an absolute bomb of a word in this text that is worth our reflection. In the Greek here, this word that we read as conceit is, is a kenodoxia. And it literally means empty pride. Pride that has nothing, no substance to it. It is hollow. Thinking highly of yourself without anything to actually back it up. How many times, church, or how easy is it? Maybe if you've been in the church a long time, you can like hide, hide from this if you want to, but it's cool. Like I'll just admit it for us because we do this. If you've been in the church a long time, it becomes easier and easier to convince ourselves that our opinion, our thoughts, our desires, our understanding of doctrine, our spiritual maturity, our person matters a lot more than it actually does. It's just easy to get a little little high on your horse and think we're something when we're not. Beloved, Paul says the unity of the church means killing selfish ambition and vain conceit. They have no place in the family of Jesus. They have no place. An ambition that puts yourself above others, a conceit that thinks you're better than you are, those things have no place in the family of Jesus. And then he says, He says that that unity in the church involves a humble weight about other people's significance. See, Paul doesn't just say to kill your ambition, your selfish ambition, your conceit. He says, replace them. 
Selfish ambition and vain conceit have no place in the family of God, but what does have a place in the family of God is the humble carrying of other people's significance. The humble weightiness of the significance of others. You see, beloved, you are surrounded by people made in the image of God. People who are precious to him. People who are wounded by the curse. Who carry about with them sin patterns and hurts and destructive things. And yet they are precious to God. So Paul says, count their significance before you count your own. To look around you and realize you are surrounded by God's treasures. You're surrounded. Jesus gives the parable of the merchant searching for a pearl of great price. And there's beauty in that that challenges us to sacrifice anything for the kingdom. But before you get to that, you have to start with the truth that Jesus is the one looking for a treasure and he finds it and gives what he has to give to get it. But for whatever reason, the God of the universe sees you and I as treasure. That makes no sense. But Paul says, the unity of the church means looking around you and seeing that. That you are surrounded by God's treasure. You you bear the the weight of other people's significance. You know, the world steeps us in self-love from birth. And it makes this whole idea really counterintuitive and countercultural. Are we really to, to bear in mind the Imago Dei of others before we bear it of ourselves? What about the Imago Dei in me? Aren't aren't I wounded by the curse? Aren't I precious to Jesus? Where is the self-care in this passage? Beloved, this is a wonderful counterintuitive message of the gospel. Of course you are precious to God. Jesus proved that. He died for you on the cross. Of course you are. So you don't need to consider yourself first. Christ has already considered you. You don't need to do that out of a sense of of, of protection or avoiding risk because Christ has already considered you first. So you are free in him to consider others first. To start with the treasure of God that surrounds you and assume that in his love, God will make sure you are cared for. Come on, church. Look to the interests of others also. I think this connects to this. It's not that you don't exist or matter. Of course you do. It's just that it's not all about you. I think Paul says it perfectly here. Look also to the interests of others. That's such a simple statement that like when you say it out loud, you're like, that's embarrassingly simple. And yet how, I mean, we need that daily. I need that daily. <laughs> Just a reminder to go, hey, 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 Sam, you know, you should probably look about other people's interests also. Oh, shoot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's so easy to default to making yourself the center of everything. 
to looking after yourself first. Look also to the interests of others. Seek the benefit of those around you. Consider them also. Work for them also. Serve them also. And he caps this whole thing off by saying that you can actually do this because of Jesus. You can actually have this mind, says Paul. Because this biblical unity, look at the text, is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus has made a way for this kind of other-centered, humble, loving, ministry kind of unity. I don't know if you're like me, but if you are, you're hearing this and you're probably thinking something along the lines of, I mean, pastor, this sounds amazing. It sounds wonderful and good, but I don't live that way. And I'm not terribly hopeful that others will live that way either. I mean, just to be totally blunt with you guys, I've been in church world for years. And that sort of love and unity seems to be very far, very few between. How is it that this biblical unity can actually be ours in Christ Jesus if it seems so rare? I resonate with that sort of question. And that speaks into my own story. This teaching sounds wonderful, but how practical is it really? Paul's response to that question is to take a deep and meaningful look at the person of Jesus. Read the rest of this text with me, starting in the end of first verse 5. Yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Paul looks to Jesus and just breaks out in spontaneous worship as he writes. And the short version of this amazingly complex and rich passage is this. This unity that Paul asks for, that Paul describes, is ours in Christ Jesus because this is how Christ Jesus has treated us. The church can be like this because Jesus is like this. Beloved, let that sink in for a moment. The church can be like this because Jesus is like this. He is God. But he looked upon us First, he thought of us first. He held our benefit above his own. He counted us more significant than himself, even though that is objectively untrue. He counted our benefit first. He poured himself out for us, for you, for me. So we get to love each other, 
like Jesus. Because Jesus loves us like Jesus. Jesus said this himself. In John 13, he said this to his disciples. And on the very night he was betrayed, a new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Beloved, this is what we mean. This is what I mean when we talk about biblical community. Biblical community means loving each other like Jesus has loved us. And how has Jesus loved us? By sacrificing himself to serve us. By thinking of us first. Putting our interests first. Pouring himself out for us. Do not be fooled, beloved of Jesus. This this amazing love did not simply stop after Jesus loved you this way. This was not a single transaction from him to you. You are to participate in the same amazing love to your brother and your sister. And I mean that. Your brother and your sister. Your brother and your sister, because you see, Jesus did not just call unto himself followers. And he did not just call unto himself subjects. Although we do follow Jesus and although he is our king, at the absolute core of Christian love is this amazing and unthinkable truth that Jesus has called unto himself a family. You, beloved of Jesus, if you are in Christ, have been washed by the blood of Jesus so that your sins are forgiven and you have been adopted into the very family of God as an honored son with full rights and full privileges. This is why the old hymn says, Jesus, our brother, strong and good. We are co-heirs with Christ, receiving the blessing of his divine righteousness. We are family. We are His sacrifice on the cross has made us like him. Yes, church, the call is to love one another as Christ has loved us. And this love, this unity, this other-centered self-sacrificial service, this ministry is ours in Christ Jesus. Beloved of Jesus. The life of the church, the unity of the church is yours in Christ. It is. The curse of sin has broken this world. And sin has separated humanity from God and from each other and from the very creation itself. People are dead in their sin and their transgressions. The curse takes and takes and takes and takes and leaves God's creations ruined and deprived. But praise be to God that we are not lost in our death. We are found. We are redeemed. In Christ, we belong. We have been united by Christ to our long lost family, the very family of God. Beloved, if you have submitted to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, then this salvation is your present reality. You are adopted into the very family of God, a recipient of his love, his grace, and his righteousness. 
a co-heir who will walk into eternity with him. Come on. And we get to love one another like Jesus has loved us. In his letter to the Corinthian church, Paul spoke to this reality. He was He was concerned about the lack of unity in this church. They were behaving selfishly and jealously toward each other. They were missing out on this self-sacrificial love of Jesus for one another. And and it was working out in their understanding of theology and maturity and leadership and spiritual gifts. And it it was incredibly messy. And so Paul speaks into this context and he says something about the unity of Christ, the unity of the church, the family of God that I think is incredibly important for us. This is in 1 Corinthians 12. It says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all are members of the body. He's using this analogy talking about the church as as, as a single living human body. And all are members of the body, though many, they are one body, and so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. For a body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? But as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And thus the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are in fact indispensable. And those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And then our unrepresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to each part that lacked it. That there may be, hear this beloved, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer. And if one member is honored, all rejoice. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Do you see this? This whole idea of this this other serving unity is not a matter of some beautiful ideal that I can say up here from a stage. This is a matter of survival. The family of God is the very body of Christ. We need one another. If one body part suffers, all suffer together. We are members, one another, each part needed, forming one body. In Christ, you are able to love this family like Jesus loves this family. Caring for others, putting them above yourself. And beyond this, hear me, church, we need you. We need you. You are a part of the body. 
If you, if you are not participating with us, then we are missing parts. I've never had surgery, <laughs> so I've never lost parts. But I can't imagine it's terribly pleasant. We need you. You're part of the body. Your person, your gifting, your ministry, your service, your presence of Jesus, you are necessary to the body of Christ. So, take this back to the very beginning of this, our our Philippians text. It seems to me to say that the relational experience of the church will create this sort of ministry unity. The relational experience of the church should create this Jesus-like loving unity. Now this may or may not have been your experience of the church. My guess, going off myself and people I know, is that it's probably been a mixed bag. You've probably had, had a little bit of both. If I'm being totally confessional, I've, I've experienced my most life-transforming experiences of love and care within the church. But I've also received the deepest and worst relational wounds of my life within the church. I mean, guys, the church is full of sinners. I don't know about you, but that's why I came here. We often treat each other horribly. We fail to step into needs that are evident. We fall short of expectations, or even sometimes we fall short of promises and commitments. We are sinful, and we all fail at this. And I'm I'm, I'm pretty confident that if you've been in church a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The highs and the lows of church family life. And yet the body still needs you. We still need you. Beloved, you have Jesus. He, he, he bought you. He loves you. He forgave you. His spirit dwells with you. His spirit is present with us as his church. He is with us to the very end of the age. So we get to celebrate this. And we get to love and serve one another like he has loved and served us, even though we miss it a ton. We get to get back up and love and serve as we have been loved and served. So here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I'm going to ask them just to kind of play a song. And I'd like for you guys to genuinely reflect as they play this song. I want you to genuinely consider this. Beloved, you are, if you are in Christ, a part of the church, a member of the body. You are in the family. So, to go to our Philippians passage, does relational connection with you breed the sort of unity that Paul talked about in our passage. Do you love your church like you've been loved? Do you love those around you like Jesus loves you? Do you move beyond your own hurts and your own needs and give of yourself to consider others first? Or maybe, maybe you just consider it like this. 
Who is it that is waiting for you to serve them? Who has God put in your life that they might experience Christ through you? Where does Red Tree need you? Who can you disciple? Who can you minister to? How can you volunteer to help the ministry of the church within which God has placed you? Where can you serve? Where can you love like Jesus? And by the way, if you're in this space and you haven't received Christ, I don't want you to hear this like that whole thing was for them and not you. Because it's for you. Because Christ is inviting you into a family. And he loves you. And he's considered you first. And, and desires life for you. So that's you. I'd love to talk to you about that. Because Jesus has such amazing things for you. Amazing things that you can't fathom. But beloved, as we, as we hear this song, as it's sung over us, we're, we're, we're going to do this a little different tonight. We're going to sing a little bit. And I'm actually going to come back up and we're going to take communion and then continue to sing as we leave. But I, really, I want you to reflect on this as this song is sung over you. Who, who are you in this family? How have you met this family? How are you serving this family? Who, who, who needs you to be Jesus? Let me pray for us, and then we'll reflect. Jesus, I confess to you that I am so selfish. I have received such, such generosity from you, and I allow it to terminate at me. And I look at the, the humanity and failures of the church and the humanity and failures within me and I just go, Jesus, what you did was perfect, but you're God. I can't replicate that. I can't do that. And then I just stop there. But beloved, we are bought by him, loved by him. Jesus, you love me so well. I don't want it to end with me. I don't want it to end with us. Jesus, we want to love as we've been loved. We want to be together. We want to be a community. We want to be of one mind, one heart, like Paul asked. We want to love one another as you have loved us. Jesus, grab our heart.